welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Animorph is a workers' cooperative and social venture using augmented and virtual realities to create solutions for current and for yet-to-be-diagnosed problems. Virtual reality is an entirely simulated space that you enter through the headset that you put on your face, while augmented reality allows you to see the environment around you but overlaps digital information on top of the real objects. So rather embarrassing, the way I get that is through Pokemon Go. Yeah, yeah, you could think of it a little Pokemon Go. Stepan Orlowski is the XR developer for Animorph and he explained how the two realities are solutions for different challenges. Well, the VR and AR apply to different problems. So, so VR has been evaluated as very efficient in uh, different types of therapies and in training. And, you know, for instance, with exposure therapy that can treat people uh, from, from different anxieties, it has achieved incredible results with dealing with chronic pain, for instance, and has been more successful than morphine. While AR is something that is much more integrated with reality, so allows you to decode information that certain machine has and can re-encode your perception, so uh, build associations between the senses. So let's say you can recognize an object with uh, your glasses and then learn about this object. But while holding this physical object and doing something with it, so that they lie on different parts of the, of the spectrum of immersion as well. VR takes you away from reality, while AR expands your capacity to interact with reality. You mentioned that VR has proven to be more effective than morphine. How is that possible? Uh, well, uh, scientists still try to find out, I guess, but why they achieved those results. But there was a study developed in the US, which, as we know, also is struggling with opioid addiction and that was the response to it. Uh, so essentially in this simulation you're just feeding otters with fish. So it's quite a simple experience, but uh, people entirely forget about the pain they feel and this lasts frequently up to 48 hours after the experience. So this is connected of course to the holy grail of VR which is presence uh, being in the simulation as if you were there with your own body. And then the psychological uh, impact of those experiences is something that we almost don't have exactly language for to describe it. We've just developed an app that uh, helps young people who struggle speaking in public. So again, this is like exposing you to larger and larger amount of people in the audience. And somehow it works. And uh, that's what also brought us to the field because we thought that it's a place to explore and place to understand. And this is why we also collaborate with, with neuroscientists to deliver solid evaluation of a software we developed to understand why it works. Yeah. I mean, there are clearly positives oh, yeah, to there, this. There's definitely many, uh, but of course there's dangers as well. And they are? I guess if it's, if it's combined with, let's say, if, if just as much as I like having fun, is it could be a lot of futile entertainment that is uh, addictive and potentially, uh, of course, VR rarely has anything to do with the, the physical activity and kind of, you know, as opposed to AR, it's not like exploring the surroundings as much. Uh, and then you can imagine being trapped in a simulated space for a prolonged amount of time. If we think about 
how some companies use social media these days to, to optimize for maintaining attention and uh, selling us stuff. Uh, then this in VR uh, paired with eye tracking becomes uh, very pervasive and irresistible and potentially uh, shaping habits that are in the long run uh, quite unhealthy. Is the industry regulated yet or is that soon to happen, do you think, with the potential fears and, and concerns? Very unregulated as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's one of those things that uh, the technology just happens and uh, regulators start thinking about what does it mean. Of course, when it comes to the medical realm, which we've en recently entered, is uh, of course, if you want to do any study, you need to go through a stringent process of obtaining uh, ethics approval. So, so I wouldn't worry about this, but obviously, many people don't need ethics approval to deploy something that will be not a medical device, but something that will use similar uh, tactics. Or so games, for example. Yeah, 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 that grab your attention and, and, and keep you in. I don't know whether to be excited or terrified. Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've talked a little bit about the kinds of products you're producing. Are you able to expand and talk more about what it is that you do? Yeah, we've done a fair bit of apps for different organizations or universities. So recently, uh, earlier this year, finished an app that it's published, everyone can download it from app stores about social exclusion in schools. So this is an application where you go into VR experience and you can uh, witness uh, different children from different backgrounds uh, being isolated and experiencing a subtle mechanisms of exclusion. And then not only you can see this happening and be sort of with them throughout their day, but you can also take action and see the outcome of your action. So, so this found that the research that followed the development process found that 89% of children 9 to 11 not only realized the, the problem, but also said that they would change their behavior if, uh, if they noticed something like that in the real world. Um, so that's kind of one strand. And I think that this so-called empathy machine approach is something that will continue developing and we indeed have quite a lot of interest in this area. But equally, we, uh, we've been researching AR extensively, both on mobile phones, but also on glasses. And uh, this is what brought us to the, the medical realm. And we recently received grant funding from National Institute for Health Research to evaluate an app that uh, aims to help people after stroke. So in essence, improve the existing rehabilitation techniques for uh, stroke survivors. So in terms of what you produce, what is the future for Animal? It's a, it's a platform that will uh, be an interface that can be up, um, applied to different problems. So on one hand to industrial training and industrial services, on the other hand to uh, helping people with, um, uh, who are challenged in, in a sensory way. Uh, these will be uh, aspects of a cognitive prosthetics, so things that uh, you can customize your reality and be able to memorize things more eff effectively as a result. So, so it, it, essentially it's like a layer of software uh, that will run on glasses that you will be able to customize depending on your needs. So, so one of the prototypes that we've developed that we recently showed at uh, IBC in Amsterdam, it's like a huge trade show, uses eye tracking to uh, pick up objects you're looking at and then it recognizes those objects, retrieves information about them, in this case from Wikipedia, and reads it to you. So it's a wheel of interaction that uh, enables you to just look at things and learn about them. How does that differ from Google Glasses? 
Mm. Yeah, it's just uh, much more complex. Uh, Google Glasses also, they, they don't display anything on your glasses in a way that accepts any depth. So Google Glasses have um, a lens just on one eye. They don't have any sens sensory capacity when it comes to recognizing 3D objects. Uh, they're very uh, you know, uh, poor quality when it comes to computing. Uh, of course, we know that they're working on something better now, just as Apple does, just as Facebook is doing. Um, but I guess it's also about the metaphor of computing. They all are applying the same uh, metaphor of 2D, you know, windows, uh, screen-based approach to something that is inherently spatial, to something that is embedded in reality, and something that can really extend how we perceive the world. Uh, so I feel that this is arguably our strongest uh, point and, and added value to, to this, that we uh, use uh, our imagination in an empathetic way to reinvent the very basics of uh, how the interface will work. Remember I sent you that link to the, the podcast? Oh, yeah. I got all excited because I was like, oh my goodness, I did not know that this could actually be the case. And the, the podcast basically was, is AI racist one of the mm -hmm. examples they gave was um, um soap dispenser mm. white guy goes in puts his hand under the soap dispenser soap is dispensed black guy goes in puts his hand under it nothing happens puts a white piece of tissue paper on his hand sticks it underneath soap is dispensed mm. takes the tissue paper off puts his hand back again and it's not dispensed and the argument behind that and apparently you can watch the video on YouTube. The argument behind that is not that AI or the people who create this stuff are inherently racist. What they're doing is inadvertently producing products that only fit one type of person or one type group yeah, of yeah, ethnicity yeah, because yeah. they haven't yes. included more mm -hmm, diverse people mm -hmm, within the mm -hmm. makeup of the, the production team. Is this something that you are very aware of and, and, and how then do you intend to battle that? Mm. So when I mentioned the, the the app that recognizes objects, that's essentially the same technology, computer vision, uh, which is machine learning that does the object recognition. And as it stands, the models are trained with insane volume, volume of data uh, that is inherently biased. It's become an issue only over the last few years that uh, the algorithms are biased. And I think even the, the largest companies are trying to address this problem. But I still think that this is a bit like patching uh, something rather than rewiring the underlying principles. Um, but this ties into um, the algorithms that run machine learning, which are brute force and based on like massive computing and uh, the data that uh, the companies, the Western Silicon Valley companies have, which are rather more likely to represent their own ethnicity or their own whatever background they have. Um, while uh, machine learning could also uh, be based on, um, on symbols or, or let's say on decoding associations um, on uh, something that uh, Vladimir Vapnik describes as uh, predicates. So let's say uh, the duck uh, using the proverb of a duck. Uh, the duck just doesn't just look like a duck. You know, it swims like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck, not it just looks like a duck, it's a duck. You know, so, so, I, think, so I think that this, this is a really big challenge and this is a, 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 like a, one of the main pillars of our research that we want to do.
in order to create an alternative to this kind of thinking. And this will not only be more relevant, but also to be lighter, it will be faster, and it will be more uh, amenable to, to, uh, to further shaping and adjusting. Uh, and then this brings us back to, to our interface, which, you know, somewhat it comes from, from our name as well, that it will constantly evolve and it will evolve with each person, but uh, uh, it will evolve in a way that, uh, yeah, respects them and respects others. You talked about sort of patching, but the fact is, is it needs to be completely rewired. That's a huge task. Do you think, I mean, you're a small company and you're intending to do that and you're quite interested. Clearly you're interested in that. But the bigger companies who will make millions and are making millions right now, do you think they're going to put the effort into doing this? I think they are doing this. Um, they know that the current notion can get them only thus far. Uh, and they are investing, yes, as you mentioned, uh, incredible amounts of money into, into uh, approaching the topic from a different perspective. Um, I think the, there's definitely a tendency in machine learning overall that uh, most of the software is, uh, is open sourced. And the base of the software is open source. So I think our bet would be to to join forces with other initiatives that support open source and treat it as, a, as something that belongs to the commons rather than something that belongs just to us. And in the past, uh, you know, in the tech industry, such approaches have, uh, have succeeded. Uh, so we might uh, be a part of this rather than, you know, the owners of this. What age is too young for tech and especially tech like this? Yeah, you, you do see those videos when uh, kids hold, uh, like really, really young kids hold, uh, I don't know, a Game Boy and they touch the screen instead of the buttons. And there are things that cannot be stopped. In a sense, people will be giving their gear to the kids and you cannot control this, I think. Like, uh, you can recommend things, but I don't think you can actually uh, effectively control this stuff. I do feel that, again, it boils down to what are you uh, incentivizing? What kind of attitudes do you want to shape? Do you want to shape, you know, just just sort of mindless clicking on things and you know generating some some ad revenue, or is it about challenging what do you see around you and also uh, treating it as a as a game of discovery? So I think there's, there's a theory that describes the two types of technology: a technology that replaces what we can do and automates things away, you know, let's say some menial tasks and then we might actually forget how to do them. But there's also a different type of technology, and for kids, uh, maybe it will be a relevant example of an abacus. So as you play with abacus, you kind of learn how to add, how to multiply, how to divide, but then you can leave the abacus, put it to the side, and then you'll be able to do it in, in your mind and do it very fast. So this is the technology that we want to create. We want to create a technology that you can use and you can explore different ways of, of processing information, connecting things together, and then you can take off the glasses and nurture it in your own way. So I, I don't think that uh, would uh, stop kids from wearing our glasses. That was Stepan Orlowski from Animorph. And you can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube.